Welcome, everyone, to the Enneagram Panels Podcast, Season 2. And I am really excited about this. I'm here with Jim. And this is going to look different than the last season. We're going to be talking about growth. I'm excited to talk about how we can grow beyond some of the lower habits. We'll explain what that is and get to really the the true self that's present within all of us. And so this was really, really wonderful for me to listen to different panelists talk about how they grew and how they're growing and even some really honest discussions about where they're currently stuck. Uh, one of the key things we looked at is the difference between self-knowledge and self-awareness. That's a huge, huge growth moment for folks. I see it everywhere. Loving personality systems, typing themselves, figuring out that they're, you know, a, a high D on disc or a high S. And there's a drive to know who you are. And that's all wonderful. I consider, you know, we think about that as like step one. But then comes the moment where you move from self-knowledge to the ability to actually see yourself doing you live. <laughs> You're watching yourself. You're, oh, here I am. This is what I'm doing in this moment. Or here's what I'm feeling right now. I have all these emotions rising up inside of me. Uh, or I have a desire to run from the situation or to run at the situation. And then... That is the moment where we can begin to change. It's right there. Without the self-awareness uh, and just self-knowledge, there really isn't much growth that takes place. Yeah, the point of this season is to begin to see moving from just self-knowledge to self-awareness, from just seeing information about who we are. And that's a great thing, that identity, like Joel said, step one to the self-awareness of seeing ourselves do those things, act in those ways in real time, and really empowering us to have a choice to act differently. That has been one of the, the biggest things that I've heard people talking about as far as their own growth, their own transformation, is now I'm starting to see myself do what I've always done, and I'm realizing I actually have the power to make a different choice. This is what I'm I'm loving because we're watching people for the first time see themselves do what they do, think what they think, and feel what they feel. And then as they begin to pivot, uh, the entire system of who they are shifts. It's almost uh, miraculous to them. Mm. Like I made this one decision to do something differently and the exact opposite of what I thought would happen happened. And I am getting better results in my life. And so we're watching people begin to undo those, those self-sabotaging habits and start to succeed in some real significant areas of life, like relationships or jobs. And uh, yeah. so it's been, it's been amazing to watch. Yeah, it's been very big for, for a lot of the people that we know as they've gone through these stages of like seeing – themselves, which can be either liberating or very uncomfortable, <laughs> definitely seen a fair amount of both, um, recognizing it. And um, then there's sort of the acceptance and owning of self, and then the power to change. And so wherever you are in your journey, and as you'll hear in these podcasts, people are in all three parts of that journey. Some of them are seeing it, and it's either making them uncomfortable or liberated. 
or they're starting to really have that acceptance of self uh, as they see who they are and then beginning to do a change in real time. And I think that seems to be the trajectory that people go on in order to fully embody the new self that is possible. Oh, we hit a, a huge point, Jim, with the whole acceptance component because we can't emphasize this enough in the work that we do is it's all grace all the time. There's never a moment where guilt works, like like shaming or guilting <laughs> yeah. actually motivates. And I get that sometimes. I, I have some of my clients will say, well, my spouse uh, is this way and I keep trying to get him to change. And, what, and, and, and there's all this, this drive and, and anxiety around it. And I ask them, well, you know, have you tried grace? You know, just be giving grace to this person. And I said, well, and I, said, and I know the follow-up question to, for, from you is going to be, well, what's going to motivate them to change? But the thing is when I ask them the, the, the next question, I said, well, well, how has it worked so far with you using guilt and shame to motivate yourself or to motivate somebody else? And they always say it doesn't work, right? So, so all we do here is extend grace so that people can feel safe enough to just be honest and be truthful about where they are. And then we trust that that alone gives them enough energy to start moving towards uh, better decisions. And oftentimes it does. Yeah. For any of you who tried to change, you've been in this position where you just uh, have gone over the same cycle. A lot of times what we've seen is people who cycle through that, it's because they're trying to motivate change through shame. And shame is an incredibly unsustainable motivator. Yeah. Some Enneagram teachers talk about it contracting, sort of like a muscle. What happens when you use guilt or shame is you're contracting down on the thing that you dislike about yourself. And when we know this physiologically, we know that you know when you're contracting, when you're tightening up and your muscles are tightening up, it doesn't produce anything really good. In fact, it's the, the whole exercise is to try to relax and to loosen um, the muscles. So – this idea works really well in terms of transformational growth is you learn to just relax in that space. Like this is not an issue over which I'm going to contract or become really driven and guilt-ridden. I am going to choose in this moment to give myself grace and to give people around me grace. And that causes this expansion to take place. And so many times the power of whatever it is that's kept that person imprisoned to their lower habits breaks off of them and gives them that release to move forward. So that's the, that's, I think the, such a, an important key is the, the whole grace component. Yeah. The acceptance to self, it weakens the chains that are trying to hold us to who we've always been. Um, so wherever you are, if you're just seeing yourself, if you're really starting to understand the acceptance piece, that's wonderful, but we don't want to stop there. And I think a lot of either self-help world, they actually stop at acceptance, which is too soon. <laughs> we do not go far enough if we yeah. stop at acceptance. That's right. That's right. We only go far enough when we actually move through acceptance into real transformation. Yeah. Acceptance alone does not bring transformation, but it is the necessary component. Grace is a necessary component in order to move forward into it. Yeah. So the first types that we're going to look at are uh, type eight. And this was such a great panel. 
I was really amazed at the character, the, the depth of the types that we had on. Uh, well, thank you, since I was one of those. You were one of them, Jim. <laughs> I, I'm aiming that compliment right I'll at you. I'll take it. Uh, yeah, it was it was so, so good to hear and, and to see the diversity, too. Uh, I really love that. So the type 8s tend towards anger and tend towards the expression of anger intensity the core vice being being lust and you know not in terms of just sexual but lust in all kinds of ways the consumption the the desire to really experience life at its full so we talked about growth in that space and that was uh, it was really interesting I, I wondered too from your perspective being one who was on the panel what was your experience like and what did you feel that you learned even having done your work already but then being on the panel I think I liked this panel better because it wasn't just the stories of how I got to where I am, but it really feels like the new life of moving into who I can be. There's ways that I've been living in default my entire life, which I am now choosing how to live intentionally. And I think the, the best thing about um, the interaction on the panel, like actually doing this live in front of people, which is a very vulnerable thing for Nate, which is very difficult, has really helped in the process, honestly. Like being honest in front of people and being vulnerable in front of people has helped in the process of moving from default mode to a more intentional way of living. All of this has been very difficult, <laughs> but I think it's really it's really been worth it. And I don't think I said this on the panel night, but one of the things is for an eight is that intensity level always going to 10 in every situation. You're just either full on or dead out. And realizing, oh, I'm in a situation that doesn't need me to be at a level 10 right now. This is a level four thing. And if I bring a 10 to it, I'm probably going to hurt people around me or I'm going to go overboard. And there's so many different things about the actual transformation process for an eight that I feel like we were able to talk about in this space. And that's really what I want to see more of is for people to actually be able to talk about the space of like how I'm moving from my default mode to my intentional living. Mm. And what's interesting is how when folks who are not that particular type listen to sort of the struggle of the eight, I hear this over and over again. People say, oh, for the first time I understand. I understand and now I have compassion. But it'll never strike you as being that difficult because it's not your vice. It's not your struggle if you're not an eight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You'll look at that and say, wow, this is, what's so difficult about being vulnerable? You know, what's so, what's so hard about being innocent if that's mm -hmm. where eights go to? And, you know, as they become healthy, as they move towards innocence. So will, will the, how, what's so hard about that? You'll hear about how eights tend to have a very sensitive BS detector. And there's always this looking for, you know, where that might be. And so to be able to move towards that innocence is a really difficult and challenging thing for AIDS. Yeah. And even if you aren't an eight and you're listening, it's really good to understand this system as a whole. I can't emphasize this enough. A lot of times people want to look at their type and move in their work, but understanding it as a whole helps you understand how you're navigating the world around you because you have eights around you. You have eights in your world. And sometimes if you go from not understanding the people around you to understanding someone around you who might be an eight, they're no longer going to feel as overpowering or as intense or just like too much to handle. 
you can actually start to move from a place of judgment of them to empathy for them and and meet them where they are to have a better relationship with them. And so that's why we really want to emphasize like understanding the Enneagram as a whole because it's not enough to know yourself because you have to interact with all of these different people. And so hopefully this will also help you know how to interact with the eights. And hopefully for the eights, you'll learn how to take another step forward. I think the other thing is learning how to give the gift that that type needs. Um, Every type needs something and wants something. And part of the thing that happens when we start to understand that about each other is we can actually withhold that because we feel like, well, you need to grow and you need to stop being so intense as an eight. Okay, so... I'm going to withhold some things that you're actually needing because you need to dial down. So I'm not going to amp up at all. I'm going to dial down, which is what eights hate, and I'm going to wait until you dial down. And that's not helpful when we're talking about the Enneagram as the gift, as a gift for all people, really, is we're starting to learn how to understand, first of all, there is a a motivation. And for each one of us, there's a growth path, and it is difficult. That's what we have to understand, and we have to have grace for each other. And so now we give each other the gift of, I understand this is what you need. It's not what I want to give you necessarily, but it is what you need, and it's helpful to you. And so I do this to serve you. And I think if we do that, then we bring out the best in each other, and we give each other grace. And it's not my responsibility if that eight in my life doesn't want to change, but it is my responsibility, I feel, to give them that gift and to serve them well. Because if I do that, then from that generosity, I also experience that kind of generosity as well. You know, it's it's the grace that you give is the grace you also experience for yourself. So, Yeah, so hopefully listening to this will be a gift to the eights in your life that you're surrounded by and a gift to you if you are an eight. And if there's any other way we can um, help you in that process, let us know. So without further ado, we're going to go to the live panels and listen to the eights talk about what it's like for them to grow. There are three types of processing. So you'll hear sometimes us talking about head, heart, body, or head, heart, action. If you think this is crazy, it's because you you were uh, not one of those other types. But when you get in a room and you say, no, come on, body type people, right? And the body type people are like, no, come on, head type people, crazy head type people, or heart type people, right? So because it's your natural place of being. So body type people think action first, feelings uh, feelings last or never. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say feelings second, not even close to second. It's then thought second and then feelings much later. And that's true to the type. It's not something that is, uh, yeah, it's just you're, you're an anomaly. There are thousands of people, millions of people who are like this. And then there are people who are heart first, meaning they process through the emotional center. They feel a lot. They feel the world around them, emotions all the time. And then you have people that are head types. We tend to avoid emotions and tend to prefer the thought and the imagination over even the action. 
that's kind of the three centers. And so tonight we're going to start with a, a, a type that said the two types are actually in the body center. So action first. Let me just describe very quickly the, the type eight as a way of orienting you guys. And then what we're doing tonight, and we're doing every night after that, is we're looking at how the type grows. And this is what I do in coaching, is helping people discover their patterns and then how to hack their own patterns, how to get out of that and then um, grow. So the eight type is the type that is called the protector. And the protector tends to think in action. I am what I do. Uh, the type eight discerned early on in life that there are a lot of people out to get you. There are a lot of authority figures that are just shouldn't be in the, in the roles that they're in. And eights generally in, in the early years lost their sense of innocence about the world. They became, they grew up too quickly. They had to, they felt that they had to. And so because they grew up so quickly, part of the way they look at the world is through, well, it's black and white. You're either for me or against me, or you're out to do something. You're untrustworthy. So I'm going to get you first, you know, or I'm going to at least detect what you're doing and avoid you if I discern it's not worth my while trying to attack you, you know? So eights are very discerning as to how they're going to do it. They're just not messy, kind of like, I'm going to attack everything in sight. It's, it's much more of a thoughtful approach, but that's the way the eight tends to see the world. So because the eight loses its innocence at an early age, it tends to have a very sensitive BS detector. And that's kind of why eights will tend to poke. And uh, if things are too calm in an environment, the eight doesn't buy it. That's you guys are all frauds, you're phonies. So if an eight starts to create trouble by throwing some really crazy thought in the midst of a party, like if a party's happening and everybody's chilling and I as a seven, I'm just like, I'm having a great old time. The eight might get a little uncomfortable and say something to provoke. It's enjoyable, but truthfully on the inside, the eight is also testing to kind of ferret out if there's you know, any snakes in the grass, I'm going to find it. It's a way of getting close to people. It's not the intention is not to push people away all the time. That's the low side of the eight, and some eights do that. What it is is it's a desire for intimacy. I don't know how to get close to you, so I'm going to try, and this is the way I know, is let's wrestle through some stuff. Let's fight through some stuff. And if you'll go toe-to-toe with the eight, respectfully, but because they desire respect, if you go toe-to-toe with them and you wrestle with them, the eight feels loved. The eight feels like now we're connected, now we're close. You might feel exhausted and, and done with the whole deal, then, you know. but uh, that's how they feel. So when the eight has been trying to do its eightness for a long time and it stops working, when the eight cannot get done what it's used to getting done in terms of action, forcing its will on something, making its body do things it shouldn't do, and then finally the eight hits a wall and can't bust through it for the first time, what happens to the, to the eight? The eight then goes to the five, and the the five is the observer, and the eight becomes very heady. The eights are not ordinarily heady. When they're exhausted and physically can't push further, and they go into disintegration, they go into the space of the the head, the five, and they overthink things, and they over-research things, and they find themselves not able to land on a decision, which is unusual, again, for the eight. When the eight becomes healthy, or is relaxed, the eight starts to look a little bit more like a two. Not in motivation. Never in motivation. The motivation always stays the same for the eight. It's that their behavior starts to look more like a two, meaning that now they're starting to become helpful, and they're not in that place of saying, well, if the world's out to get me, 
or if the world's untrustworthy, I'm going to consume and I'm going to take and I'm going to, and it starts to give and it returns to the place of innocence, being okay with serving and having the possibility of being wounded, having the possibility of being surprised by people who turn out not to be who they said they were. And that's, that's where the eight goes in health. So it's a little bit on the eight. There's so much more to be said, but what I want to do is turn to you guys and talk about growth, transformation. Maybe to set it up is to say, tell me about a time when you hacked your own pattern. You managed to experience that space of innocence, despite what your natural orientation is like, don't trust, you know, and kind of keep people at a, at a certain distance or to put them in boxes. But you're able to, to move more towards that. So for those who don't know me, my name is Angel. And I used to pastor, busy assistant pastor at a church in Maine. And so as an eight in that realm, it forces me to being in a position of being understanding with people. And so I was also the leader over the transformation ministry, which is emotional healing, etc. And so I had a new person who was with me and we go through questionnaires and everything. And, you know, Joel talks about being surprised and being blindsided. And because we don't like that, it actually takes a lot to surprise us. Like we can pretty much stay here pretty easily. And so I'm really good at putting on a poker face, etc. And I was in this situation where this person had shared her whole story and it, well, it took two sessions and we're there. And it was the first time she had shared her story. And I'm sitting there and she says, now that I've shared my story, I'm going to have to kill you. And any normal eight would be like, I will get you first. You know, that's the immediate defense mechanism to say that I have power in this situation. And for me, it was a time when I saw myself really clearly sit back and be able to say, I know exactly what this person is going through. And I saw my innocence in that space that said I would feel exactly the same way. And there were times when I felt that way. If I shared my story, I want that person to not exist because I wouldn't want the vulnerability of somebody having that information. And to for me, that was power. And that's what's interesting is that it made me feel powerful to be able to give this person the space to say that and not respond, not even, you know, tell my pastor that it happened. And so for me, that was revelatory to see that I could stay in that space and give and serve, serve that person. I feel like it happens in a million small ways all throughout the day. I can't think of like a big story doesn't come to mind. What comes to mind are the little moments where a five-year-old can make me feel powerless and it takes everything in me not to just rise up and want to squash the thing that's coming at me. I've seen this in my relationship with her more in a more immediate way than I have ever experienced I haven't felt that level of surge of frustration, of anger, of intensity since I was a teenager myself. 
And so many times it's the pushing against the type is to actually like kneel down and, and speak to her. And at one point, several months ago, I felt God say, whisper your corrections and shout your praises. And the tendency that I would have is to just, I have a strong voice. I have a strong presence. I laugh now because I was leading worship as a teenager and it was not a problem for me to sing louder than 40 people. Like just, I have that kind of that thing. And so that is something that you can really wield in, in a really um, kind of negative or positive way. Um, and so much about it is how I'm going to use that voice, use that power. And I think I knew pretty immediately that I couldn't use that in my marriage or I wouldn't have one. Because Abby, next panel, nine, very even keel, very um, like very loving, very like open. And if I were to use that kind of force, it would just shut her down. And then there wouldn't be a relationship. And I knew I didn't want that. And so I think that has been the primary training ground. That was the first time I really had to like learn, okay, if I default to my norm, I will lose what is most precious to me. Because she did not come easily. I had to freaking fight for her. And to know that if I were to, in a, a point of frustration, just come on. Like I have that thing in me. And even when I did that, I saw like you guys all jump because that's in there, you know. But if I'm going to use that to people around me, that would just shut it down. The, the only outlet for that that I've found that is really helpful and, and beneficial is there's like a place in worship where there's almost like this growl that comes out of me that I know that is pushing back the darkness somehow. And that's the appropriate use of it. But whenever I apply that to any other area of my life, it causes destruction. It causes a breakdown. And so I have to go, I have to flip to the other side and I have to lean into the go and be like, no, I have to lower myself. For years, my favorite verse was the um, Philippians 2.1, that he who being very nature God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself. And those kinds of verses are really needed to cement themselves in so that I wasn't constantly trying to defeat the fourth grade bully I saw around me everywhere, regardless of the form it took. For me, it's not necessarily around people that I find myself having to pull back because I'm very action-oriented. I'm very much, let's conquer it. And so even just recently, I was looking for an apartment and I needed to move out at the end of May, and I started looking for this apartment in February, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I am consumed with looking, and I am going to get the best apartment, I'm going to get it at this price, and it's going to be waterfront, it's going to be, like, I have got the list going, and I am conquering the apartment search, and I find this apartment, it's amazing, everything is included, and it's on the water, and it's under my price, and I go... And I submit my application and he comes back with, your application has been rejected. 
And for me, that was devastating because I took it personally. I'm like, it's because I'm black. It's because I'm a woman. I went through the whole list as to why. And I went home and I was, I felt the anger and I got into my bed and I'm like, I'm not even going to pray. Nope. Nope. God, you just dangled that carrot and you didn't make it happen. Where are you? And just one word came. And it was the word permission. And I was like, okay, I am going to get real quiet. And I'm going to say, God, I don't know where you are in this, but I'm going to give you permission to take control. I'm going to take my hand off and be really still and just hear what it is you have for me. And as clear as day, I heard him say, it is not yours to get. It is mine to give and yours to receive. Can I I stop? Because that's really good. That's really good. This speaks to much to the eight type, right? (laughs) So that's what I want to hear is like, because to someone else, it's like, I was like, that's cool. Wow, that's really good. But like to the eight. Uh, and it's on every level because you yeah. can take that to love, right? <clears throat> I can get God's love. I deserve God's love because I have prayed, I fasted, I've read the Bible, I've got his love. And yet he says, no, you don't get my love. I give mm. my love. You're already worthy. You woke up enough. You're already my child. You already belong to me. I'm already pleased. And for an eight to sit back Mm. and take their hand off and say, I receive that without any action Mm. in myself. It grounded me. It grounded me. And, And then, you know, and it was just like, okay, I receive. I receive. I don't know what I'm receiving. I hate the feeling of helplessness, vulnerability, ultimate surrender when you're at the end of yourself. I receive what you have for me and I receive your love and I receive the fact that I belong to you and I receive the fact that I'm your child. And within two weeks, I got a knock at my door. I didn't even look for it. I got a knock at my door. My landlord said, I'll give you a place, $400 less, right in my budget, right on the water. And it was like God was saying, that's what I'm talking about. I can do it better than you. Mm. Yeah, so so fascinating to, to listen to that story because there's so much about it that's like, oh yes, that speaks to the eight, that speaks to the eight. So being in the receptive role, right, where it's not yours to get, yours to earn, yours to wear it, it's yours to receive. Mm-hmm. Receptivity is not an easy thing for the eight, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Because the feeling is a lack of control. It's a lack of control. You feel vulnerable. You don't get a say because it's like, okay, God says receive. And now you're like, okay, what is he going to give me? And what does he expect in return okay. for it? Okay. Right? Now I owe him. And all of that has to go away because that's not who he is. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm in a situation today. So that's all well and good. It's a powerful <laughs> word. It grounds you. And as an aide, I got up the next day and it was like, I was on Indeed.com looking for a job. You know? <laughs> like, 
I've been looking for a job and I've been getting really frantic and I've been getting all these words and it's going to be great and you're going to do this and you're going to do this. And I got called into my office today and I was laid off. Today. Today. Receive that. And that's (laughs) the space. Well, and and then on top of that, you're like coming here tonight. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I had just signed the lease for the house. Oh, jeez. 12 months. And that's when, for me, being blindsided, being surprised, because I had asked them before I signed the lease, uh, is my role safe? Because there was a lot of changes. And they were like, yeah, we're not making any plans to lay anybody off. And so to get laid off, blindsided, as much as I tried to control the situation, and, 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 and God is saying, it's not yours to get, it's mine to give. And you're like, this is what you're giving me, God? I could do better myself. And that's when the type, the low side of the eight, rises up and says, I will take control. I will find a job and I will break the lease agreement and I will do this and I will do this. And, and suddenly... Out of nowhere, God said, I didn't dangle a carrot when I gave you that house. You need to keep the house. And I'm like, how do you receive? If you're beyond faith, you're, you're leaning away from everything you know to be true as, as yourself and your personality. And even beyond belief and faith, it's like you're asking me to sign 12 months and I have no income. And it's, again, it is not yours to get it's mine to give and yours to receive. And so forcing myself, even today, to text Joel. And I, first thing I said is I'm still coming tonight. I, I had to make that decision to continue to move forward and say, okay, what do you want me to receive? That place of being blindsided and being surprised and the vulnerability and when things go wrong when you do it, it's hard to not to switch back to, I'm going to take control and yet stay in a place of what we say, consent to stillness, giving him permission to still control, take your hand off that wheel and say, I'm going to just say yes. I'm going to say yes. I don't understand it, but I'm going to say yes. And that is huge for an eight. Been there. Yeah, there's this weird thing about, like, I don't trust anything that is gift. I've just been realizing that more and more. It's like, if it just comes to me, there's either going to be a, a catch or a condition, or it's going to turn out, like, way different, and it's just not, it's not going to work out. Because you have to remember, there's this tape running in the back of the, the mind constantly. Like, you have to control the situation. So receiving is not control. Grace is an injustice. That's how I feel about it. It's the centerpiece of my faith, and I consider it emotionally, my reaction to it is grace is an injustice. It's wrong. It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be that good. So I've never been Catholic, but I get it. <laughs> So it's more like it's a work. You have to earn it. Grace meaning that the world is just. The world is you get what you deserve. Yeah. Just realize this as I've gone through this, some of these Enneagram thing as far as my motivations behind certain things. So I grew up in a culture that was very um, religiously 
you know, you have to do these things. You have to be very disciplined in this way. You have to do the right thing and you have to uh, study the Bible and pray and all this stuff. And the thing is like, I had the capacity to do that. I could do the discipline in a way that a lot of people around me were like struggling. Like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't do this thing or I messed up in this area. And I was like, you're all so weak. You're weak willed. You can't even control yourselves. And you're not learning. And I said this in one of the classes, like, um, I, I studied scripture, not because I was in, in love with the scripture or in love with God. I did it because it gained power, authority, notoriety in my community. And all I was becoming was a really knowledgeable soul. Like that was all I really was, was because this was the motivation was, okay, control, Lust, that means a lust that meant a lust for knowledge, a lust for influence, a lust for if there's a question in the room and the entire room can't answer it, I will be able to. Like the motivation of it (laughs) was jacked up. Like honestly, I think in a lot of ways, worship saved me from that. Like leading worship saved me from that because it was just, it put you in this, uh, a much more vulnerable place. And the weird thing about even speaking, you're speaking sometimes and and then all of a sudden that's the moment the emotion decides to come out of you. And I hate that. My weekend, they were introducing me for the first time and I had a whole different kind of talk planned. I had this thing and I was going this direction and, and Joel was just like, yeah, I don't, I don't really feel like it like hits, you know, at the end, like it's kind of in the head and these things are connected. And I was like, well, I've got this other story about um, the whole miscarriage process we went through. And I shared that story and he's like, we're deep into the pool people. We, you know, go for it. I'm like, I'm going to do that in front of a bunch of strangers. Like that's the last thing I want to do. I want to come across as smart, as biblically literate, as an authoritative presence, I'm there to show this is who I am. And instead, I'm going to get up and tell like one of the most vulnerable stories about weird dreams I had and where God was speaking to me. And I'm, and I'm going to like get emotional and tear up. Screw that. <laughs> Every moment of my life is, I want to do this. I see vulnerability. Screw that. And then choosing to do it over again. I've been leaning into a lot of Brene Brown's work lately because it's all about vulnerability. And they say the biggest thing that's hard for an eight is the vulnerability. So I'm like, I better get to know vulnerability. And I'm getting it more. I'm, I'm starting to see it and see the benefit of it and the beauty of it. But honestly, the first year I was looking at any of that stuff, it was like, I logically know that this is a necessity that I must engage with. That was it. But that, that was enough to go to the next step to where I can even talk about this now. So talk about what happens when you, when you do no. lean into, <laughs> let's go, let's get vulnerable. Uh, so talk about what happens when you do go against the low side of the type, when you actually behave differently than what your natural propensity, what it guides you to do, what happens? You know, for, for me, I have to literally turn off my head. I am planning and in action without even noticing it. 
and to have to stop and not do this and stay present to the emotion and stay present to the vulnerability and stay present to the fear and stay present to the doubt and stay present to the lack of control and the lack of power, the powerlessness, the helplessness, the you're going to give me something-ness and look and be like, yeah, no, you know, staying present and feeling that and observing, okay, that's how I feel about it. Being able to stay in there. I tell you what, if I can do it for any length of time, it is really rewarding. Like I feel rest in a place that I can't feel rest any other way. No, no sleep can give me. Is I feel totally at peace and really calm. Doesn't necessarily last very long. And it takes, it takes a lot of energy. It takes mm. more energy mm. for me to stop mm. than for me to go. And so I get tired. I get tired being still. I get tired not planning. I get tired staying present. It drains me. I go for a nap if I stay present for too long. And so that's what's interesting is that it actually drains me to stay present. That's fascinating. I did not know that about about AIDS. Is that true for you too, Jim? Nothing is more draining than stillness, than boredom, than like inactivity. Inactivity is exhausting. Yeah, exhausting. Yeah, some of you are like, what the? Do they live on a different planet? Like, but, but maybe some of you, commercial break, maybe some of you live with an eight or have an eight boss. This is what's going on, like inactivity. Fascinating. Inactivity is exhausting. Yeah, I mean, I had a slogan for a long time that I still hold to that vegetation is not relaxation. Like sitting there just like watching a show or something that that's not relaxing. There's no recovery in there. Sunday, Monday, I was in a like a real bottom out place. I was just exhausted and I've been just ro- riding this, you know, roller coaster and had like come off travel last week and then went right into a busy week. And I was just exhausted, but I know like laying on the couch is not going to help me. So I went surfing for like three hours. It was bigger waves. I'm like being in the ocean, like getting beat up and um, like holding on and having to control your breath and then, you know, catching a wave and having this high and then having to battle your way back out past the crash zone. And like, then I felt like human again. I felt totally whole again. I felt relaxed. I actually slept that night. I hadn't been sleeping well. So it really helps. The recovery is different. My friend, Scott, he left me a Marco Polo because he got some really good advice from his Enneagram coach, Joel, (laughs) as he's in Colorado. He was just let go from his job. It was like his dream job and he only had it for a year. It'd be interesting to lean into this space a little bit, which is this, uh, for some of you, your emotions is like walking into a petting zoo and it's just like these emotions, these animals are just surrounding you and you can like walk up to any of them at any time. And, um, but (laughs) for he said to my friend, and I, I think I relate to this a lot. He says for, you know, a lot of times emotions are like wild animals. If you go after them, you'll just scare them and they'll just run away. <laughs> For some of them, you know, you just have to sit and wait in stillness and let them come to you. Because when I first started going on this, this Enneagram journey and, I, and some of it really like started popping up and I started seeing stuff that I did not want to see, Joel asked me, well, how are you processing that? And I said, I'm not, and I'm not going to process it. Because if I start processing it, all I'm going to do is create the explanation that benefits me instead of actually sitting with it 
and saying, I just have to like sit it and let it work on me. And so I do that some days and other times it's just like, I, I can't take it anymore. I just can't take it anymore. Mm. So there's a consent. I mean, a lot of this is like you described the, the emotions and relating to that piece of like being like wild animals. Uh, you know, it, you have to sit still and then they come. A lot of it for, for the type eight then is consenting when they come. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it's that sort of saying, okay, they're here. Because the automatic pattern of the eight is to not. It's to go to solving the problem Absolutely. in a practical, uh, action-oriented way. Yeah, so like even for me today, I know I need to cry. Like I know I am supposed to cry. And I, I've tried, I've sat and I'm like, okay, it's going to happen. Nope. And I know it's going to happen. It's going to blindside me. It's going to yeah. come out of nowhere. You know, you're going to be talking. You can't control it. You can't control well, you can't control it. But it is that thing where you even say, be present, feel yeah. it. And it, nope, it's not there. I know. I actually know here too, but it doesn't come. The emotion, I cannot tap in to the emotion of it because I need to fix it. And if I feel I don't have bandwidth to fix. Ain't no time for emotion. Feel it after. We'll deal with that after. Fix the problem. I'm telling you, it's instant. You know, the idea would be to increase the reaction response time. It is so fast. It's automatic, yeah. I can't even catch the emotion. Mm. It's a it, it, millisecond, and I'm in my head. The emotion is gone. It's, there is no emotion. Mm. And to pull it back and to sit in stillness, to try and feel that, and to stop your head from trying to fix the problem, because I really should be on Indeed.com right now. There is no bandwidth for emotion. Mm. And for me to feel it, it's, it's tiring to try and feel it, so I just don't. I just don't. And it doesn't get pent up or anything like that. I just don't. Nowhere to be found. Whenever I started dealing with some of the emotional stuff, there's this voice that constantly goes in the back of my head that says, this is inefficient. That's what it feels like. It doesn't like I need to deal with this. It's like this is inefficient because I'm not doing the next thing on my list. I'm not doing the next thing that's going to help me feel more powerful in control. <laughs> so this is just in the way. This is inefficient. Like that's how I feel about all motion. Okay, so let me give a, a little bit of perspective because one of the things that, and, and I'll do it by way of what you said to me on the phone earlier was, okay, so does stillness mean I don't do anything? And I said, said no, it doesn't mean you don't do anything. What it means is that you don't do what your normal it's not even that you don't do what your normal thing is. It's that you become aware of your patterns. It's going from stimulus response, stimulus response with no thought to then having the ability to reflect. Is this what I really want to do? Is this the best thing for me? Are there other options for me? Right. You know, one of the things you had said to me in one of the coaching sessions, because I think I, I was like, is it right? What's right? What's wrong? What's right? What's wrong? Because it really is black and white. Just tell me the right thing to do, Joel. And if you've ever, no, he does not tell you if it's right or wrong. He's like, I'm not going to tell you if it's right or wrong. I'm going to just ask you a question. (laughs) Sound like me. What gives you life? And that was huge for me to make a decision based on 
what gives me life. Because I wanted to call everybody, bash the company, get a band of people to justify why I was angry and why I felt that it was unjust and all of that. And to sit back and say, what would give me life right now? I know what I want to do. And I know what I want to feel. And I know all of that. But what gives me life? And therefore, what is the universe saying in this space? Because there's a point to this. I really don't believe in coincidences. And so being able to, to be an observer and stand back and go, that's what I want to do. But the control comes in, what will I choose to do? So mm-hmm. it's still control, still good. Mm-hmm. But what will I choose to do? How will I choose to respond? And I, I don't catch it immediately. Sometimes it's a good 30 minutes in and I'm like, oh, you are spiraling bad. And it's like, okay, let me observe. It's almost like you have to stand back, detach from your behavior and look at your behavior and say, is that what will give me life? If your type looks for power and it goes by its normal patterns of getting that power, then when you start to realize that that's not actually giving you a sustained measure of power, which is what there's always need for more, when you hack that pattern and you're not doing that, what is it that you experience? Because I don't actually fundamentally believe that eights should never feel powerful or should feel weak. That's not the goal is that, okay, you guys are, are you, need to, you need to be weak, you need to be mushy with all your emotions exposed. It's, it's not that. It's that the type actually is a very powerful type, and that's actually part of the gift and the strength. You're a protector. So, but the means by which you go to get that power at the low side of the eight um, isn't providing that in a sustained way. Have you found when you've done something different that it actually gave you a sense of, of power and of strength, um, but that was more sustained and had more depth to it? I don't feel like I have a desire for power in my life and in my eightness as much as I've had a desire to destroy power that I see as negatively impacting others. So it, for me, it's not, I want power. It's like, nobody should have that. And no one is more aware than those who have the desire for it at their core of how dangerous it is. Mm-hmm. And so I nuance it again because I don't trust it. And I certainly don't trust myself with it. There's a big relationship to power, but the place that I've found the most sustainable value, which is seems to be the core I'm really going for, is not so much in power, but in, but in relationship. I actually do believe that there's nothing more powerful than love. <laughs> and so if that's the ultimate power, if God is the ultimate power, and what ultimate power looks like is love and service and then, then that's the kind that I want and I enjoy the most closely. And it's the only kind that doesn't rise up this voice in me that says, destroy, kill. Mm. Mm. Oh, and I think the, I think eights invented the lawsuit. (laughs) (laughs) True. Um, And I think just to tack onto that, I feel most powerful when I can give someone power. So I'm most attracted to the most broken. Like I can walk into a room and I will be, I'll know the weakest person there. Mm. 
And I have no idea how I know, but I will saddle up to them and I want to do this. Yes. Oh my gosh, that is the most satisfying space to be. And so I always used to say I'm attracted to brokenness. That's how I mm. coined it until I read the Enneagram. And I'm like, no, I'm equalizing power in the room because marginalization bugs me, mm. bugs the crap out of me. And so I want to walk alongside the weak ones and say, let's go. That gives me power, mm. sustained power. How is that different than like what you experienced kind of before and before you saw yourself on this journey? Because you've had that desire to lift others up, but would you have understood that in different terms prior to coming to this? Actually, I always thought it was my own brokenness. So I thought I was attracted to people like me. I never realized I was getting power from it, Hmm. you know? And so it's also safe. So the flip side for me is I like to hide. There's a whole backstory behind that. But if you go with the weaker ones, people don't see you. So you can actually hide behind the weak. And so it's a shadow side of me that I would saddle up to somebody who was smaller than me so it would make me look small. And so I was consciously denying my presence, my awesomeness, my light by walking alongside. So it wasn't giving me power in that context until I realized, you know, really pastoring is what helped me really lean into I love lifting people up. So it's no longer that I'm hiding behind them, but I'm lifting them up so others can see them and still not me. Hmm. So this is a great way of, of sort of starting to wrap up our talk on the eights. Is that what you're noticing? There's the high side of the eight. Those are the things we say we don't want to change that part of the eights. That's actually a very, very, very high quality of the eight. And every type has a high side, high side to it. And so what we want to do is expand that, but then understand that there's this low side that's always sabotaging the high side. And so that's the high side of the eight that's beautiful is you're the protector, you're the defender. You see someone broken and weak and you're very justice-oriented as a type. Yeah. It's justice-oriented, but there's the underside of that is it's vigilantism. Like it's totally like a vigilante type of justice mentality. So there's still it's still black and white. There's still the it's good very, guys, bad guys. Very, Batman is like the ultimate eight. <laughs> you have all of the resources yeah, yeah. to do whatever you want to do. You can fly around the world and learn every kind of deadly thing. You can have the greatest like toys. You're accountable to no one. Like Batman is the ultimate eight. <laughs> We should do that with superheroes, right? Yeah, right. Type the superheroes. All right, so questions for, from you guys um, on that. Yeah. Are emotions seen as a weakness from the perspective of an eight? Mm. I, don't, I don't know. I, I, they, they feel irrelevant. Is that the same? <laughs> um, it, uh, if, we got that, if we got close enough to answer that, we'd probably get uncomfortable. <laughs> What's interesting is I don't look at other people who are, who are emotional and think they're weak. Like, I have no problem with your emotion. Right. It just is not for me. Yeah. Done. It's not about weakness or anything. It's just, it's a waste of time. <laughs> but if you want to have them, good for you. Um, but if I, ha- if I do have them, if I have that surge of emotion when I'm speaking or when I'm, I'm leading worship, and I've had that several times, like, what's going on in my head is... 
I know this serves a purpose. I know this is going to be helpful to somebody. This is going to help lift somebody up. There's a good reason for it. But my connection to the experience is not what other people are experiencing from it. If you ever ask an eight when they're crying, what are you feeling? What do you guys say? I know what you say. I would literally need to stop. Like, I get it. What do you feel? I would have to stop and say, I have absolutely no idea. Give me a couple minutes and I'll let you know. It's just not there. I find that to be true with a lot of eights is when you ask, it's just, there's no, no sense. So the emotions are coming through the body. The, uh, it's like it bypasses your heart somehow. It's like you're seeing it. I do feel anger that I feel very strongly. If I'm, when I'm angry, if you ask me if I'm angry, yes, I'm angry. But other than that, no. And what was interesting for me is forget crying. I don't feel happiness. I don't know how to feel truly groundedly happy where you're laughing and nobody cares on the feet. Nope. That is a lack of control right there. And so that's what made me realize I was unemotional. It wasn't the lack of crying. It was the lack of laughter. Yeah, I'm different on that one because everything for me starts with like there's a logical benefit to this. And uh, I'm sure of it somewhere down there. And so for me, it was like this practice of gratitude. Okay, I get that it's practice of gratitude. So just stop. You know, thank you. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for this beautiful, you know, sky. Thank you. Thank you for the tailor I met who like fixed my jeans that were too floppy. Like, thank you for the music I got to play today. It's this thank you, thank you, thank you. And then as that have done, like I'm actually able to experience joy. And then I'm starting to see the benefit of it. So much of my life was happening around me without my awareness because I wasn't present to it because I was constantly pushing on to the next thing. No success ever felt like a a success. It just felt like, all right, step on that stone. Now I can climb a little higher. Like that's all it, that's all it was. And then now I don't, I don't feel like that now. Now I'm really enjoying joy in a, in a fuller way, but that's only written off of now a couple years of a consistent gratitude practice where I'll do it throughout the day. And I'll just like name every single thing around me that I'm thankful for. And I can do that for a long time now, which is really helpful. Mm, that's awesome. One of the things, um, I think it was one of the first questions you asked is how we grow. Mm. And recently for me, because my action orientation is in everything from the time I put my foot on the ground, it's, you know, get the coffee, do the kids, da, 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 da. And I found myself having to say, taste the coffee, taste it. Describe the texture, how much sugar it has, is it bitter? And that slows me down. Like, that's what stillness mm-hmm. is for me. It's not necessarily inactivity. It's observing what is actually happening. Because I can go through my whole day and somebody will ask me, and be like, I have no idea. I know I got shut down. But taste I'm a foodie. I love high-end food. And don't ask, but don't ask me how it tastes because I don't take the time. So now I'm like, take smaller bites, chew slower, and taste it. That's what it looks like for me is that stillness. Is you, you're not, the action is not to consume the food. Mm. It's enjoy the journey. 
be present. Love yourself. Fall in love with you. What are you feeling? Why are you eating? You know? And that helped me even with dieting because it was like the lust for us. Let's just consume as much food as possible. Let's cook the food. Let's eat the food. And, you know, one of the things Joel had even suggested with that is figure out why are you just blindly eating through everything on your plate? And just from doing that, my appetite dropped. I didn't even want the food and just enjoyed it. And it's just amazing how it shows up in every area of your life when you can take the time to just be present. And I, for me, it's asking myself, what are you tasting? Right now, my taste senses really help right now. So to finish up, this is an illustration of how the eight... Uh, you could, you, all of you could have, could have said, "Oh, yeah, this is oh, there's something really good about just slowing down and tasting food and not rushing through it." Something really good, but the way it's going to help you break your own pattern is going to be unique to your type. So for the eight, it is this thing of consuming and lusting and just taking. And so when eight slow down, the effect is slowing down to taste goes against the consuming and the lust. And to appreciate, like Jim was talking about the gratitude practice, to appreciate what you have in this moment, that reflection, that self-awareness is what starts to undo the just sort of automatic patterns that the eights go through. So, yeah. Thank you for joining us for the kickoff of season two of the Enneagram Panels podcast. And guess what? We have a Facebook page now. You can search for Enneagram Panels podcast on Facebook and the group should pop up and we should be able to interact a little bit more there and uh, have more some more content as well as ways to interact with us. For those interested in getting some life coaching with the Enneagram as a tool, you can contact Joel through www.joelhubbard.com. This podcast is produced by Talkie Records Studio in Lynn, Massachusetts, and made possible by Vine 39 Church in Stoneham, Massachusetts. This season will be coming out weekly, so make sure to subscribe, and if you can leave us a review on iTunes, it helps people find the show. So thank you so much, and until next time, have a great one.